Welcome to the Remote Work Drive podcast with your host, Jessica Malnick. Stay tuned to learn how to manage remote teams that are effective, collaborative, and happy. Hi, my name is Josh Ho. I'm the CEO, founder of Referral Rock. And uh, Referral Rock is a software as a service that helps businesses run referral programs. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming on the Remote Work Drive podcast, Josh. Can you tell me about the most exciting thing that you're working on these days? Hmm, exciting. Well, it's it's hard where we're at, so everything feels exciting. I'm very action-oriented, but at stage of the business where we're at is those exciting things take like six months to happen versus six hours or six days in, in the early time. So biggest things I think we're working on is really trying to put more of a point of view into our software and marketing messages versus just the, hey, we are just X solution trying to check these feature boxes and trying to have more of a, like, this is what we think is right. This is how you think we think people should run referral programs. Our software speaks that way. Our marketing language speaks that way. Our sales speaks that way. And really, instead of being trying to be like, hey, what do you need? And we'll do it. And our tool can do all sorts of different things. Um, trying to have our solution kind of have more of a, a, a strong voice, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Um, can you maybe walk through a little bit about what that evolution of that process has been like for you? Yeah, I mean, it's one of these ones where, so for us, we are about, say, six years into the business. And in the beginning, you know, it was the first phase I would call just you know, not quite MVP, but just MVP of the business model altogether. So as a SaaS, we stumbled well into SEO. So that's where we get a large amount of our, our lead flow and we built a solid enough product. And we had an angle of the product at that time, which was to really run referral programs for any sort of business that weren't just e-commerce. Because when we first started, most of the things out there were plug into Shopify, uh, you know, be at the end of a checkout, that type of software. So we started with the initial idea and the point of view to run referral programs for a business that would be like a yoga studio, uh, a car dealership, different things like that. So that's where we started. And once you get going and you have inbound customers coming in, you start to basically sell what you can sell, right? And give benefits for what you can. When customers come in asking for ABC or XYZ feature, you kind of start to build those things. And after a while, you end up with uh, a lot of different features with you and you end up kind of losing that initial like positioning or reason and the, the targets you're doing. And I think this is largely because of inbound because you're taking all these people coming in. You're like, oh, I can sell them this. I can sell them and so you end up with a little bit uh, drifting, I would say, because you listen to the customer voices, which is great. But um, I would say over, over the course of time, uh, making sure that we had a sustainable business, generating revenue in a profitable way, and building a team to help me do it other than just myself, we ended up in a place where it is not as well-defined as the initial messages. So, so that's kind of where it, it, how it evolved in our trying to refocus and trying to really concentrate on the right customers, the, the ones that are paying well, the ones that are also, uh, how would you say, just a, a great fit for us because we have enough data now and we have enough people. And now it's kind of getting us away from just the, how can we make everyone happy by building features and service? And how can we do it in a more 
uh, long-term way that is the way we want to do it, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. I have a lot of follow-up questions um, from sure. the there. Um, first, can you talk a little bit more about your current team structure? Sure. So right now we have uh, four teams. Uh, so I'll start out from the, 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 the ones customers would see first. So we have a marketing team. We have a they write a lot of content, like I mentioned, SEO. So we have a, a fair amount of content. Um, I always say if you, we do a, a good enough job with referral marketing from a content perspective that it'd be hard for us to not be in a conversation with someone that's seriously looking for you know, referral software. Uh, and then after that, you run into our sales team. And then so our, we have an inbound sales team made up of about, I think, three salespeople in addition to kind of a manager for that team. And then we have a customer success team. So a big part of us, what we do is once someone um, decides to buy our software, either through a trial or through talking to a salesperson, people can sign for themselves. But most people end up talking to someone in some way, shape, or form. And uh, that customer success team helps them with onboarding, integrations, implementations, uh, referral marketing, best practices, and things like that. Uh, and lastly, we have the product team. Um, which we have a product manager in addition to, you know, a tech lead and uh, some developers and a uh, quality assurance engineer as well. Absolutely. And I want to say that your team is predominantly remote, correct? A hundred percent remote. Yes. We were doing it before the pandemic forced everyone else to. And, and I'll be honest, it was like a really competitive advantage from a hiring front, you know, three, four years ago. Uh, not so much anymore, which is Part of my our challenge today, trying to hire and, and onboard people. But yeah, we're 100% remote. We've never had an office. I've always been right here on this desk for the most part, working remotely. And um, we have to we we are all like U.S. space. So I don't think I've met everyone, but we've had little meetups here and there. So, you know, some a, a person might be coming to town because they're visiting a relative, and we might get a few people together. Um, we've had a couple instances of that uh, where we've had maybe five to five to eight people at a certain event. Uh, we did have the product team here over spring break. We had someone come into town again, <laughs> and then we had uh, we just basically flew in a couple other people to just round out and have the product team all together. So. You said something really interesting there, which was remote was a competitive advantage when it came to hiring mm -hmm. before the pandemic. Um, yeah. And now as a lot more teams have gone remote or at the very least hybrid, some of that has gone away. Can you maybe walk through some of the challenges that you faced since the pandemic when it comes to hiring and some of the ways that you've been able to kind of stand out and attract really good, attract top talent for referral work? Sure. So I'll, I'll, it's probably easier to say what it used to be like so you can kind of see the difference. So I mean, I felt when, you know, four years ago, three, four years ago, when we would make a job posting and we post to somewhere like, you know, uh, I think remote.co or we work remotely, a lot of the remote job boards, like we would get tons of applications and it would take us very long to sort through and find the right fit people because there were always good people looking for more flexibility in their life. So that's what we did. So it was like, it was great because we could find very talented people that were like they did prioritize their lifestyle, but they might've been, you know, three or five years into their career, but they understood that, Hey, if I have this great flexibility, 
Uh, maybe I'm taking less pay. Maybe I'm doing travel. Maybe I'm doing some other thing. I don't necessarily have to prioritize being in an office and adhering to everyone else's schedule to kind of make a nice life for myself. So we were able to get higher tier level of talent for honestly, like being a bootstrap company for not paying necessarily top dollar for people, but also knowing that they would be able to have the flexibility. They would be able to, some were living in South America, they were US-based people, but uh, being expats in different countries or wanting to travel more and wanting to use this opportunity to go, hey, I've never tried living in Austin. I've never tried living in uh, you know, Seattle and giving a chance for people to kind of move around and not worry about being constrained by their, their in-office type of work. Absolutely. And what are some of the ways where today you're figuring out ways to kind of stand out um, in a much more crowded remote job market? Yeah. So yeah, getting back to your original question today, it's much more challenging. So when I put up job post, uh, I don't know if it's either less people are searching on those sites because that used to be a positioning thing. Like I'm specifically looking for a remote job. I'm going to look on these remote job boards. Um, and now when we post there, we don't get nearly as much, <laughs> we get nearly as many applicants before it was, we got to kind of be the bell of the ball and get to make our picks of, of who's there and talk to, you know, it would be, it would probably be two weeks and we'd have a strong set of candidates that were already through funnel. Um, and now it's probably, it gets to probably about a month or so there might be an influx when you get it. Honestly, the quality isn't as good as it, as it used to be. And so what we're doing a lot to stand out now is we're just trying to lean even harder on our advantages. So um, I I write the co- I write the job boostings myself and really try to embody what it's like to work here enough that we get a lot of commentary from people that apply to those. They're like, "Hey, your job posting just stuck out to me because I do want to we do want to stick out to the right candidate." So what we're talking about, hey, this is an opportunity to do this. This is exactly what you're ty- you're you're doing if you're if you're of this type of person, you're going to fit well here. Uh, a good example is like I have a, we have a, uh, some roles on the customer success team that require to be a little more technical. And I think in there, in that job post, I wrote something like, you know, hey, if you're that, if you're that friend that everyone goes to for technical help when their Netflix is broken, their computer needs repair. If you're that person, like you're the person we want on this team. You're that, you're that self-starter isn't afraid to take apart a computer you know maybe you're not you don't know necessarily all the technical things or can write code but you're not afraid to do that your your people gravitate towards you you're that family and friend resource that everyone calls for tech support so that was something like we wrote in there and that has usually gotten comments we've gotten the way we rate our sales postings or, or uh, the way i write the job postings has really i think helped to stand out among the crowds Absolutely. And I feel like it's so important these days to like actually write job posts that aren't the same, like, you know, standard ones that you see that like a really big brand, like an, I'm going to say like an Amazon can get away with writing a crappy blog post because they have the brand of Amazon. They've employed like what, 2 million people in the US, but like anyone who doesn't have 2 million employees, like being able to stand out some of that is by just showcasing like a little bit more personal side um which kind of leads me to another question which is it sounds like you were really you built a really strong uh team culture can you maybe talk about some of the ways that you've been able to facilitate camaraderie and collaboration um 
with like a really tight knit team with a really tight knit remote team? Sure. Yeah. I mean, a lot of those things I think boiled down to, I guess for us finding, we're usually looking for that more experienced people. So I think most of the people here, they, uh, they're happy to interact with people like from a culture standpoint. Um, but it's also, I think a challenge a lot of companies run into is if you're hiring new grads, like sometimes work life is a big part of their identity, a big part of kind of trying to get immersed in a city or getting out of college life and into like work life. And they're also looking for social things and whatnot. And I think a big part of it is, you know, that we haven't hired any new grads. We're always trying to get people that, again, like have, have a level of experience and that they are prioritizing the quality of their life and understand it balance out with other things without saying, you know, work-life balance, because I know certain people have a trigger word for, I don't understand that one, <laughs> but, but that type of thing. And so I think it also has to do with how we manage from an internal standpoint, from like a work operating system perspective. So we don't have much internal email. We do use Slack, but we also are very strong in like cultural patterns on how to reach people. So you don't end up with, hey, I'm trying to, message you, Jessica, like, I'm not like, oh, I'm going to send her an email. And if she doesn't respond there, I'm going to Slack. If she doesn't go on there, I'm going to at her in Zoom because I don't know where to find her. And I think those are the types of things that make it really easy for people to communicate. If people know where the right place is, the asynchronous nature of all the communications and interaction just add to like people being able to feel comfortable doing their work, but also feel comfortable saying, no, can we do that async or, and I think that becomes a big part of culture. So everyone is at ease with that. So then when we do have culture events or we do have, Hey, let's get people together for, we've done random things. Like um, we've done some game things. Uh, we've done some, I think, what's that like among us, then those things will go in bits and spurts, but they're always voluntary. Um, so I think those types of things have helped try to look for opportunities to bond with teams and to do, we do like a, a monthly, when we do our monthly all hands, I'd say 80% of it is very light where I, I do uh, like a, we do kind of an icebreaker type of question, but it's all stuff I usually come up with. So they're usually kind of quirky and not necessarily typical icebreaker types of questions. Um, and I think those really help because you end up having people that don't get to see each other very often. And when they are on a live Zoom, we do Pretty much, we, we never say we require video, but everyone has video on. So video is part of our culture. So you end up on this Zoom with a question like, um, how do you feel about, you know, which is the right way to, to have the toilet paper direction? And then people get really passionate about it. And, you know, so it, it ends up taking probably, you know, 8% of those monthly meetings. And we have these types of things that um, I think give a good vibe of people doing like what they're here for, their work, but also a sense of camaraderie with their teams, a sense of uh, understanding what people are going through. Sometimes we've touched on other topics like um, imposter syndrome and other things like that, and people really open up, and it's been, it's been pretty interesting, and I think we have a strong culture because of it. That's awesome. I have like three follow-up questions. This is like fiercely taking notes about things you said. Sure. Um, one thing you said was really interesting is like the perception around work-life balance. 
Um, mm-hmm. Can you maybe walk through a little bit more about like what you view that as, as well as maybe some of the like, you know, pushback that you've even heard from people on your team or just anywhere online? Well, for me personally, that I'm probably not the best example. <laughs> uh, like I have mostly because River Rock is my life. Uh, you know, it's like, I can't not be thinking about it. It's, it's not because I, and I, I don't have a choice in a meaning like I want to do this as well. It's not, uh, I wake up thinking about it. It's uh, there's, if something's going on for, for good or bad, it is basically lives with me. And um you know, bless my wife for also understanding that. And, and, and I, we also have, have kids as well, but being able to do the remote thing, you know, not spending two hours in a commute, not worrying about um, just like, just being able to pop out. And I, we, we picked up a dog during COVID. So I do a daily, you know, dog walk, which actually is really helpful for me to kind of get away from the computer. And that's when all the shower thoughts, ideas of problem solving come in and I'm like recording myself on my phone while I might be walking or listening to podcasts, different things like that. So I'm not the best example, but I would say within the company, uh, like the, I don't really expect anyone else to be thinking about business like I do. So, you know, most people, um, they, you know, we try to, like, I think you, if you look at our Slack, there's like, no one's talking after hours. No one's, um, you know, no one's, they might use Asana because they know it's async and there's no expectation for people to respond. So we're working on a project together. I might be working that night and I'm comment there. And I think no one feels like they have to respond on there. Um, but if they do, great. If someone happens to be, that's fine, but there's no expectation. And I think we carry that very well in our culture to where, you know, after five, it's like, quiet, you know, before 9am, you don't really hear much on the weekends. You really don't hear much. Um, unless something is really important or is scheduled to happen, um, I might be on there and can actively work as it fluidly matches with my life. Um, but uh, the expectations of other teammates, it's like we you have to have a strong level of trust remote work. You can't be like, okay, we need to install these things or to, to watch these screens and to time you on when you're in apps and things like that. And I'll be honest, it's some people that have come into our culture have come from other organizations like that and they raise their hand and they ask to go to lunch or they ask and like, you don't have to do that here we we trust you and if if you're it'll be pretty it'll pr- be pretty uh obvious if you're not doing your work or if your objectives aren't being made or things like that there's enough other systems you have to touch and interact with that you know you're not able to really hide here per se but we also don't you don't have to raise your hand and tell everyone what you're doing and ask for permission so yeah, it's basically, you know, treating people like adults and expecting that yeah. they're going to actually follow, you know, do what they're supposed to do in their job, um, which is a very sensible approach. I've never really understood the need for, like, like you touched upon for, for some of the employee monitoring software that, like, take, including some that, like, take a photo of you every, like, right. 10 minutes that you're working. I'm like, that seems like, okay, like, you're treating an adult like you would a five-year-old. Um right. But anyway, I, you kind of touched upon something that's just me kind of ranting a little bit. Um, you touched upon something really interesting there, which is just making sure that you can have really trust your team and that you can trust them to do um, their job well. 
are there ways that you either like screen for that within your hiring process or like when you're training people to be able to, you know, figure out, okay, like this person seems like they have a lot of potential. Um, yeah, I'd be interested to hear that. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, in our hiring process, we always have, it's multi-step. So when, when we start back with that, like we talked about the job posting, um, the next piece after that is if there's, uh, we actually have our own like form that we have for the, for the application. And again, it's not, it's just honestly using like form software. So it's not anything special that goes into a greenhouse or some of these other kind of fancy types of uh, hiring software. But also we, we have a, we'll have a form for every application and it usually asks a few open-ended questions, ask for the resume, ask for like a LinkedIn uh, profile link, things like that. Um, but that probably cuts out, uh, that probably gets you about 80% like of the noise uh, just because that you'll be kind of surprised the number of people that just like write a two word answer to some of these open-ended questions or just say NA, <laughs> it'll be required, but they'll just like not applicable. And it's sort of easy to kind of realize, okay, if a person's going to put effort in on the front, how well they write there and, and things like that are an easy way to kind of give a level of like, are you actually serious enough for like, to, you know, to read the application? Uh, one of those, like, one of the questions is often like, what spoke to you about the application? What makes you think you're a good fit? So really getting into hopefully lowering people's guards to let them know that, hey, we really want to talk to you. We want to be a mutual fit. Like if you're not a fit, that's fine. But at the same time, we're not just like handing out a job to anyone that is looking for it. So that's that's one of those early processes. In addition to there'll be a screening where we're talking for about half an hour, getting to know each other, just maybe I'm uh, talking more about what the job is like and if they seeing what types of questions they ask. And the next step is always a project of some sort. So even if it goes through a developer or for a customer success manager or in marketing, we usually line up some sort of take a project type of thing. Um, sometimes it's using our software. I've gone away from any project that is usable. Like it's most of our, pro all our projects are pretty much standardized versus I know some employers might say, hey, we're working on this thing. Like, hey, uh, can you write, you know, for a marketer, can you write a blog post on this? And I feel like that's not quite fair. It should just be, here's the standard offering so we can judge everyone from the same, you know, set of products. Um, after that, there's usually a, if the, after the project, we only invite people into the project after that initial screening. Um, and the next one is usually a review with, with the potential manager as well. We'll bring in other, other teammates to that. And then after that, there'll potentially be an offer. So a lot of those little hoops, we have learned to just take our time on there versus getting elated with the first call about someone that can fill a gap because sometimes you are like going to the grocery store hungry, but you got to fight that and work your own process and make sure you're checking your boxes because you're not only protecting yourself as the employer, um, you're also protecting that person because really at the end of the day, everyone wants to have like a mutual relationship. They want they want to be in a place where they feel valued and their skills are a match for that employer and vice versa. So even if it takes a little more time or if someone's a little more anxious on it, just have to constantly remind that this is for the good of both parties. So. Yeah, that's such a that's such an important point. Um, can you maybe talk about 
how your process maybe differs for hiring a manager versus hiring an individual contributor? Sure. Um, so for a manager, we'll still, we might not do the project as much. So there might be that one since there aren't often availability for manager positions, but I actually went through this fairly recently. And when we, it was challenging hire just because we, you know, bringing in a manager to run it, an existing team, you I wanted to make sure that that team was able to contribute to the process as well. So a big part of that was working with the team and making sure, okay, I'm letting them know I'm going to be talking to a large amount of people. This is going to take us a long time. So it was like setting the expectations internally was a big piece of it um, so that they knew that they're going to be part of the process. Um, and later in the stages of the candidates, they would get an opportunity to talk to the person. It wasn't necessarily positioned as a, you get to veto the people, but you get an opportunity to talk to the person, I'll hear your feedback. Ultimately, it's going to be my decision. And I made that stuff clear, but also your your contributions or what you say is valuable and does matter. Um, uh, but it's all ultimately, it's not like a democracy type of decision. So making sure that's well understood, that people feel heard and they feel part of the process. Um, but they also mostly want to trust me that I can make that make that decision. So instead of the project, what we ended up doing was it's this one sort of happened, I would say a little bit by luck, and I would probably repeat the process is uh, we were also going through with that same uh, team a sort of a discovery process on certain certain ways com uh, companies were being onboarded with us. So we had this screen share where we were talking through, asking questions, kind of mind mapping the process, making sure everyone was on the same page. What we ended up doing is we took that screen share and I sent it to the job candidates and basically said, hey, here's a team meeting. So you kind of get to asynchronously see your team interact, talk, learn a bit about the product, learn a bit about like how the team works um, and how they were mapping those things out. And essentially it was, a, it was a very thoughtful brainstorming discussion. And essentially I just prompted them with like two questions, like, well, uh, what do you, you know, watch this video, tell me, you know, tell me what questions you have, uh, you know, anything you would add, anything you would suggest type of, you know, type of thing. And that was a really good kind of open-ended thing because I wanted to see how invested they got into it how quickly they picked up on the people, on the what did they comment on? Did they comment on the people? Did they comment on the process? Did they lean in too far and say, hey, I think this should change and this should change and this should change. So it really gave them a like a, an open slate with the actual team that, that gave them an opportunity to comment and see what they thought. Are they going to be over aggressive? Are they going to be uh, just asking a ton of questions and that's fine too or is there a balance between the two like hey I would suggest this but I also want to know this you know so it gives you an idea of how that person's brain thinks about these things and how they would approach kind of what was going on in that team yeah absolutely shifting gears just a little bit what are some of the ways like what are some of the strategies that you found have worked really well when it comes to managing a manager so that one I this one's interesting because I I used I did a better job of it a year and a half ago, <laughs> and I got and I lost something along the way which I didn't realize. So, I, I think the key things with managing managers is uh, that I've realized is like managing by numbers is 
is definitely something that you need to like kind of remember to keep doing. So I used to do it really well in terms of we had KPIs and we had very specific metrics. And what happened is about a year and a half ago, uh, for whatever reason, I started to get away from it. We were still reporting on them, but I paid less attention to them. And I asked less questions about the numbers. And we didn't continue to update the numbers to align with how the business changed. And so during that time, about, you know, about a year's worth of time where I wasn't granularly looking at the numbers as much or be asking enough questions about, well, why is this and why is that? How, is this trailing? Is this doing that? I sort of like let the managers kind of run with it. And I think they realized that I wasn't paying as much attention. I kept drawing attention to different questions of like staffing and process and procedures and different things. But since I was not focusing on the numbers, they started focusing less on the numbers as well. And what happened was we, you know, uh, about, I would say six to nine months into that process, we started looking back at the numbers and I started asking questions and then we're realizing a lot of the problems we're facing related to would have seen more telltale signs of what was happening if we were watching those numbers more correctly or changing the, what those numbers specifically were. And I'll give you an example. So I'm not just saying KPIs and numbers 50 times, but uh, one of the ones we did for customer success was um, days to launch. So how many days did it take to launch once a customer bought and how long did it take for them to launch their referral program? Um, and what got lost in those numbers was one, we changed to a whole new system. We were using, we, we actually changed to a proper customer success management software. And we spent so much time in that implementation. We got away from just tracking those individual numbers. And what ended up happening is just, you know, I started looking at it less. The manager started looking at it less. The CSM started looking at it less as, as it, as it drifted, our focus drifted right onto other problems and other types of things. So um, that's something that one, it probably stayed too long at that number. Uh, and we should have changed it to, we should have been, we're now looking at changing it into like efficiency to launch, like how many meetings does it to launch? Because what we ended up doing with that other number was people were so concentrated on getting them to launch faster that they were actually doing probably more services and more necessary. Because let's say we're working in the software and you have a problem actually faster for me to fix your problem, to give you a knowledge-based article, to send you a video and have you self-serve it, which is really what the customer should be doing. Uh, but oftentimes we ended up with customers that got so wed to CSMs that basically we were giving full service <laughs> versus just sort of, uh, you know, um, more support and more customer success. So that's one of the problems we ended up, we didn't evolve that model um, over the time. So we kept on one KPI too long and then we didn't watch it enough to realize when it was breaking and when it was changing and took our eye off the ball. And, you know, that's, we've, since then we've had to do, relook at our process and other stuff that is, is coming. If we were doing it six months earlier, uh, we probably wouldn't have dug as much a hole as we found ourselves in. You bring up such a great point, which is, you know, whatever numbers you or KPIs you end up focusing, you end up setting are the ones that people will oftentimes like hyper-focus on. And if that's not the right number, not the right approach, that can actually skew not only that direct report, but an entire team. Um, do you have kind of processes in place or like even just a framework that you use to really think about 
how you go about setting, you know, North Star metrics and KPIs? Uh, yeah, so we do we do use the OKR type of stuff. So we we do OKR setting quarterly um, with teams. We do them at yeah, we do things on the team level. We haven't really done them much on the individual level, but a lot of them marry up to you know team level sort of numbers. Um, so we go through that process, uh, like I said, on a quarterly basis. The biggest thing we learned on that one was uh, this year we did change it from being a quarter ends and quarter starts on the same day, <laughs> which ended up being very stressful at the end of every quarter, which also end of every quarter ends at every month and every and end of a quarter also ends at end of year. So we're like, wow, this like that end of, end of year time frame where you had end of quarter, end of year, end of month became super stressful. So we have moved it so it has an offset to where a quarter ends on the quarter end date. So it would end on, let's say, you know, for for June, for this quarter, it'd end on like June 30th or June 31st. I don't remember how many days there are in this month. <laughs> uh, but the new quarter doesn't start until two weeks later. So there's like a two-week lag time in between. So you can wrap up your quarter, be done on the day, and then the next set is planning. So you take the first two weeks of the quarter to do the plan. Now, we still retro count the numbers that happened in those two weeks. So if you're setting, it doesn't. You, there's not a like blank blind spot for two weeks. It's just like if we decide, hey, there needs to be this many leads or this many views to articles or this many, you know, uh, like closed one deals, that type thing. It does still track back. So you kind of are hedging a little, you know, a little bit, but honestly, two weeks isn't going to be much to kind of give you a head start on on the quarter anyway. What is, if you don't mind me asking, what is your planning process like and what people on your team are involved in it? So it usually starts with the retros. So we do retros. Every team does the retro every month. And usually what that leads to is there's, you know, in that retro, they're also updating the OKRs for that month. Uh, sorry, sorry, like the quarterly OKRs, they're setting these numbers. And we use all, we use Confluence for that. So there is just company-wide, like, here are the OKRs for Q2, and they're listed there, and they're in tables with the team. Um, and we try to keep concise enough and high level enough that everyone has a general understanding of it, um, just so when we are talking about it in meetings, people have a general idea of what it is on, on every team. Um, so after, the t- after they have all the numbers, then essentially they're, they're, they have an idea of what they want to do. So the t- it always starts with the team first and the, and the manager. So the manager is working with the team to set them. And it's kind of a draft after their, their last retro. They have a general idea. They knew what they finished last quarter and they're setting those up. Um, in the meantime, I usually am planning some ideas that I think will kind of float from a vision perspective or what's going to align with our team. So I have some bullet note ideas of what I think should be incorporated. And that's when we kind of sort of come together. So the manager and their team have ideas, then I have some ideas. And then I'm working with the manager to refine those and kind of come up with the best mix of two of them. Um, so sometimes uh, things might get dropped on their side. I, mine, sometimes mine were too aggressive. Other ones were too in the weeds or too detailed that the team might come up with. But by then, um, then we do a review process with each team. So then once there's a, let's say like final draft version, the team gets to review it. They have any other questions. So it kind of bounces from them to the manager. I contribute, goes back to the team, and then it's sort of finalized after that. So everyone gets 
and on the action. And I think in a way that everyone gets to influence it and, and comes aligned and on the same page at the beginning of the quarter. Yeah, that's a super smart approach. Um, and I would say to wrap up with a couple of lightning round questions. Sure. Um, yeah. What's one book that you'd recommend that all leaders should read? Ooh, for leaders? Yeah. I don't, um, honestly, the, the, the book sticks out to me like lately, and this is just what's going in my head is, um, it's called, let me, it's a horrible title. Um, it's called Extreme Revenue Growth. <laughs> so it's really more on the, and I, and I think why I say this about leaders is, is because like at, at the end of it, you have to, it's a business. So if you're a business leader, and that's really my context is like the numbers and the different things about the messaging and the positioning, the promises made to customers and the distribution of, you know, the marketing and the product and all of those things, like at the end, that comes on your shoulders. So if you're not focused on those pieces and get to the really key elements of, are you delivering for a customer? What are the promise you're doing? Can you reach the customer? And those are like what the book over and over emphasizes to me. So like I said, it's a horrible name because it sounds like, you know, it's just about money, but it's ex Extreme Revenue Growth um, by Victor Tang. Nice. Um, but what it has for me is I am always thinking about the people and the empathetic side and how messages get delivered. And that's where, you know, this is the type of book that kind of helps refocus those things on, okay, why is this a business? Why are these things? If, if the business is winning, it allows me to pay people better to, you know, share in the share of profits, share in the wins, all these other things. And, you know, it's hard to say, but money does solve problems, right? Like when, when this stuff is all working, like even if your day-to-day life, day -day life is struggling or some other things, like these are the things that can, can help and help solve problems. It's like, okay, Jessica, you're writing articles and it's painful because we have these goals to set all these other articles, but if more money is coming on the door because we're doing better on delivering on business metrics, I can give you more resources. I can give you two other writers to work on your team to help you do those types of things. So it can alleviate other pain and other, other ways. So for me, that's, that's a big part of the focus on, on those numbers and making sure that at the end of the day, I'm really delivering on the business fundamentals because no one's just going to do it but me. Yeah, absolutely. Like as no one really likes, to, it might be taboo to talk about it, but like money does solve some problems. Like it can like, yes, you have to be an empathetic, uh, like good leader, but like having like, you know, more revenue coming in the door than the business can actually just make that even easier to be like, you know, in that sort of way. I, but that's just me going off on a tangent. If you also had on the topic of books still, if you mm -hmm. had to write a book tomorrow on literally it could be on any topic you want, what would you write it about? Uh, <laughs> My wife and I have had an idea to do a book together. And that might sound like a terrible idea when I think about when we have to do like home projects together, because we're both basically like a strong divide and conquer type of team. But things I see as we grow the business, like I see parallels in kind of managing like your day-to-day and -day home life. So I've always, we joked about writing a book that was kind of more of this like handbook for families and things like that, but kind of why, why aren't, you know, there's tons of these business books that talk about OKRs and different things. But when you say, Hey, it's time for our monthly family meeting, that sounds taboo. That sounds like, Oh my God, you run it like a, it's like, yeah, but 
You run with rituals, you run with goals, you run with like having these meetings so people can talk about their feelings. Like we'll talk about our kids. How do you, here's what's coming up in the summer. What are the things on your bucket list? Making sure that at the end of the summer, they had a say, they felt like they had a voice, like all these different things. So one of these days, we'd love to kind of put together a book that is like a, like a business book, but for families. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, it's been really great chatting with you, Josh. Where can the listeners find you online? So uh, I'm active on Twitter at JLogic. Uh, I also have a podcast with my friend Nate called uh, Searching for SaaS, where we talk about founder SaaS things. And uh, those are probably the best places to find me. If you want to hear more of my garbling on, there's there's the podcast. But um, I'm easy to connect to and find on, on Twitter as well. So. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. All right. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the Remote Work Drive podcast. Please visit our site, theremoteworkdrive.com, to learn more about remote work trends and insights.